This is Science Friday. I'm Ira Flato. Later in the hour, our annual summertime reading picks. Do you have a science book to recommend for vacation reading? We've got a bunch to give you, so give us a call. Our number, 844-724-8255. That's 844-SCI-TALK. Our tweet is at SciFry. But first, the approaching summer means rising temperatures for most of our northern oceans. But this year, they're surprisingly warm, and researchers aren't entirely sure why. Joining me now to talk about that and other top science news of the week is Casey Crownhart, climate reporter for the MIT Technology Review. She's here with me live in our New York studio. Welcome back, Casey. Thanks so much for having me back. It's nice to have you. Okay, first on these warming temperatures, how warm are we talking about here? Unusually warm? Yes, definitely unusually warm. So we just got data back from the month of May and it was the mm-hmm. warmest May since records started being kept in 1850, um, about 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit higher than normal, which is pretty significant when we're talking about ocean temperatures. And and this is all over the place or just one place? It's all over the place. We're seeing kind of more of a temperature increase in some parts of the oceans. The North Atlantic is looking especially warm for some reason this year, um, but this is really kind of a worldwide thing. And we don't know why. There are a lot of theories. Climate change, global warming. It's kind of, we're not totally sure. Like it's probably maybe a little bit something to do with climate change. Maybe there's, you know, some natural variation, but there's a lot of kind of controversial Hmm. takes right now. Is there a number? How much warmer it is? Um, So in total, it's about 0.8 degrees C above normal um, or 1.5 degrees Fahrenheit. So, I mean, it's a lot. And that's definitely something to kind of be concerned about because warmer ocean temperatures can mean, you know, more powerful hurricanes. It can mean, you know, consequences for wildlife. So it can be a pretty big deal. Yeah, wildlife that lives there. Okay, let's go to other climate news. There's an unusual lawsuit going on in Montana. Tell us about that. Yeah, so a group of 16 young residents are suing the state of Montana over climate change. Um, They're basically arguing that some of the state's laws um, that prop up fossil fuels violate their constitutional rights. (laughs) Wait, you're going to have to. What's the basis? Tell me more about that. Yeah, the. They're in the Montana state constitution. There's a line that says that the state will maintain a, quote, clean and healthful environment for present and future generations. And so basically, the plaintiffs argue that there are a couple of laws on the books. Um, One is the state's energy policy, which directs kind of how the state uh, produces and uses energy. And then the other one is the Montana Environmental Policy Act. And so the plaintiffs are saying that these laws, by kind of, you know, promoting fossil fuel use, um, are contributing to climate change, which obviously isn't always aligned with a, um, you know, safe and healthful environment. Yeah, because it said about future generations also. So we want to make sure they're safe for our kids. We're, what's that old phrase? We're, we're borrowing time from our kids or future <laughs> generations? And, and, and if they win, could that lead to similar suits in other states, possibly? It could. And actually, we've already seen that some suits are ongoing in other states already. So the nonprofit law firm that is um, involved in this um, suit is already involved in some other uh, suits. One is in Hawaii. That one could go to trial as soon as this fall. Really? Mm-hmm. So are, is anybody giving odds on how successful <laughs> this might be? It's really hard to say because yeah. it's really the first lawsuit of its kind. Um, I will say that the state has tried to get the case thrown out and then tried to get the ca- the trial delayed. And in both cases, the judge said, nope, we're going to trial. And so we're going to see another week of testimony. Um, and then, you know, we could see uh, a decision soon after that. 
That's that's interesting. Um, on one route to reducing your personal climate impact, of course, is moving away from things like oil or gas furnaces to heat pumps. I know one of my favorite topics. I want to hear more because I know you've written a lot about <laughs> heat pumps. So let's talk about that. Yes, I always want to talk more about heat pumps. Um, and so. Basically, so some background here, new consumer climate technologies like solar panels, electric vehicles, we know that, you know, they can help cut emissions. They can also help people save money. They also can come with health benefits. Um, But typically, these technologies and their benefits are much more likely to be accessible to wealthier people that can afford them. Right. Um, And so this week, uh, I wrote a story about some new data, which was from a 2020 survey that suggests that heat pumps don't follow this trend, that at least in the U.S., they're pretty um, evenly distributed among the lowest and the highest income groups, right? About 15% of Americans use a heat pump as their primary heating technology. I didn't, I actually, I didn't even think that was that high, mm-hmm. 15%. So it's really um, geographic specific. So the southeastern U.S., much more likely to have a heat pump. I'm from Alabama. 40% of homes in Alabama are heated with no, a heat really? pump. really? Mm-hmm. 40%? So it's this kind of like overlap between places where electricity is cheap and where, you know, a lot of places where the winters are a little bit milder. So in those places, heat pumps are already kind of a no-brainer because yeah. they're cheaper than getting central air conditioning and a heating system well, in a pe- lot of cases. For people who don't know, what's the basic setup of a heat pump? Yeah, sorry, I kind of skipped over that. <laughs> um, I was so excited. Um, heat pumps use electricity to cool and heat your home. So they work similarly to an air conditioner, right. but they can heat and often they can do both heat and cool. So you don't have to install two units. Do you have one unit that turns into an air conditioner in the summer and then turns into a heater in the wintertime? Correct, yeah. Not all heat pumps can do both, but a lot of them can. Yeah, um, and this is a technology there that there are credits and incentives for. Mm-hmm. And so I want to emphasize that a lot of the folks that I talked to for this story did say that even though we do see a pretty even distribution right now, it's really important moving forward that having these kinds of credits and doing them well will help these technologies be accessible to a lot of a wide uh, array of people moving forward. Yeah. 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 And so the tax credits in the Inflation Reduction Act, you know, there's $2,000 towards the sale of a heat pump. Um, Some state rebate programs can go up to $8,000. So the Department of Energy actually just put out a new tool that you can use to see if you're eligible for this kind of thing. Um, it's called the Energy Savings Hub. So you can check out, see if you can get your, your very own heat pump. Yeah, because when I was, my my uh, my heater is about 20 years old, mm-hmm. 20 years old. And I was talking about replacing it with a high efficiency unit. Mm-hmm. And and my, uh, my company said, well, no, go with the heat pump because- yep. It, you can save money on the installation and there are these tax incentives. Absolutely. And the time to do it is before it, your heater goes out because it's right. harder to do it when you really need to get the system replaced right away. And it's amazing how much money you can save with mm-hmm. these things. I mean, I have solar panels which make my electric bill $9 a month as opposed to 300 as it wow, used to yeah. be. And um, we got heat pumps then. I love that. Oh, I'm going to move to that next. All right. let's. I could talk about this a lot more, <laughs> as you can tell. I'm sure you could. Let's move uh, on to some exciting this, news this week that found uh, water from Saturn's moon Enceladus, and it had a really interesting chemical in it because they have like little geysers sprouting <laughs> out of the, that yes. moon, right? Yes. Um, this moon sounds absolutely wild. A lot of the stories that I saw referred to this ocean on this moon as a soda ocean because it's very fizzy. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, but yeah, so scientists, when they look for life on other planets, they look for a few key ingredients that we know all life on Earth or most life on Earth has, you know, carbon, hydrogen. One of those things is phosphorus. And so they found in some of these kind of icy shards that come out of these geysers on this moon of Saturn um, that there's phosphorus in them. Wow. So this is the last of the right. six kind of ingredients that they were looking for on this planet. So it means yeah. that all the ingredients for life are on this moon in Saturn. Yeah, because there's an ocean under this crust, this icy crust. Yes. And maybe, who knows? Who knows? We've got all the ingredients. Gotta go back. Let's go. <laughs> <laughs> Let me move on to some, some darker news. There's a very strange story this week about people being accused of selling body parts from the Harvard Medical School morgue. Yes, it's really, like you said, a really dark story. Um, so the morgue manager at Harvard Medical School was accused of stealing and selling body parts. Um, medical schools often use human remains that are donated for research, right. um, for teaching purposes. Um, but the morgue manager and then a few other people were arrested this week for a scheme that went from 2018 until just earlier this year. Um, it looks like they were taking you know, parts from cadavers that were set to be cremated. Um, so Harvard says that they're working with investigators to figure out, you know, what happened and which donors may have been affected by this. It sounds like something out of the 18th century, not 19th century, some sort of Frankenstein. I know. Kind I know. Of thing. It's terrible. But it's really uh, and, and they just discovered it had been going on for a while. Mm hmm. Years. Wow. You know, we recently talked on this program uh, about the body mass index or the BMI. And this week, the American Medical Association called for doctors to change how they use the BMI. Because when you go to the doctor, they, they take this body mass index and say, well, you're overweight, you're not overweight, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So as your listeners probably know, um, BMI is kind of a ratio of your weight to your height. Um, there are a lot of problems with using it as a measure to diagnose people. Number one, it's not a very good way to measure your body fat because, you know, you can be really muscular and have the same BMI as somebody who maybe has more body fat. Right. Um, but also it's not a good way to kind of measure health at the individual level. Um, so we saw this week, like you said, that the, this association voted for doctors to de-emphasize its use in, in clinical practice. Yeah. And, and, and uh, the, a the AMA... American Medical Association carries a lot of weight with doctors, mm -hmm. so uh, no pun intended. <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, it is one of the, the largest medical groups in the country, so um, it'll be really interesting to see kind of how this changes the field and practice and, and if, yeah. you know, doctors start to change how they how they talk to people. Yeah. Finally, on a sort of existential note, there are flies that, that experience death that may age faster. I'm just going to let you go with this because I, <laughs> I have no idea how this works. Existential is exactly the word for this one. Um, so scientists were looking to understand whether flies might undergo some physical changes after they were around sick flies. So if, you know, their immune systems would kick into gear or something. And they started to notice that flies would undergo changes, but after the flies that they were with had died. Wow. Um, and so it's a really weird finding, but they found that, you know, these flies would lose their stored fat and that they would die sooner than other flies did. And there's no way to extrapolate this to people yet. It just flies. It's really hard to say what exactly <laughs> this means or even what is going on and what the pathway is. But wow. Yeah. Wow, it's very weird. We love you bringing weird stuff. <laughs> it's my favorite thing to bring, Ira. Glad to hear it. Okay, you're always welcome back with it. Casey Crownhart, climate reporter for MIT Technology Review, here live with me in our New York studios. Thanks for coming in. Thanks so much for having me.